On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, I'd like to welcome all of you here, and those of you at our Skagit campus in particular, I just want to say um, congratulations yet again. Four weeks ago, uh, Elise left in the middle of the service to go have a baby. Last weekend, Maddie had a baby. Congratulations on that one. And next week, Bethany, our Explorers League director, is having a baby. So, Skagit, keep growing, and everybody else. It must be in the water. Careful if you drink out of that drinking fountain. Good to have you with us, those of you online as well as those at Gym Church and here in the room as well as we uh, wrap up this series that we've been looking at uh, out of the book of 1 Corinthians the last 10 weeks. Not an exhaustive study at all, but it's this letter that was written from a pastor, the founding pastor, Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul, to this church that he had, he had planted and uh, that he had spent uh, some uh, extended amount of time with them and then moved on. And then he writes this letter. And I was thinking about the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. Now, he had relationship with a lot of different churches that he planted, but with the church in Corinth. And it was really interesting as I was thinking about that, um, some lyrics to a song that I haven't heard in years came. It was from a song in the late 90s from a genre that is not a part of my repertoire or playlist. It was, in fact, I wouldn't have even known who this artist was, except he was kind of a one-hit wonder, and we kind of took that one-hit wonder, changed out one word, and actually hijacked it and made it a worship song. That's the only reason I even know. But the, the artist, his name was Fat Boy Slim. Which makes you think he was probably sponsored by Jenny Craig or Nutrisystems, whatever. But Fat Boy Slim sang this song, and the lyrics went, we've, been, we've come a long, long way together through the hard times and the good. I want to celebrate you, baby. We changed the word baby for Jesus so we could worship with it. I, want to cel I need to celebrate you, baby. I want to praise you like I should. And I was thinking about Paul's relationship with Corinth, that they had come a long, long way together. I mean, he goes into a city that there is one of the most ungodly cities imaginable. There's no church there. And he talks to these people. He begins to explain to them about Jesus, about grace, about the kingdom, about forgiveness, about life in Christ. And here are these people that have come a long, long way. They've come from being pagan, you know, uh, pagan worshipers to children of God. They've gone from death to life. They've gone from darkness to light. And not only that, but he had spent some time, he had poured into them. He had taught them. He had preached to them. He had 
establish them and, and arrange them in leadership positions and as a church. And then he goes away. So he's been with them in the good times. He's poured himself into them. He's invested his heart and his life into them. But it's not just that they've gone a long, long way together. Through the hard times, because it wasn't always easy sailing. As we've seen, this church had a lot of issues. In fact, the whole reason for this letter of 1 Corinthians is to address some of these issues. And in the second letter of Corinthians, we won't get into that, but he references another letter that he wrote, and he refers to it as the severe letter, that he had to use some really strong words. And we've seen that there's some pretty strong words in 1 Corinthians, but apparently it paled comparison to the severe letter, and he also refers to the painful visit that he had with them, probably on his third missionary journey when he spent three months with them yet again to confront some of these issues. So they had gone through some hard times. They'd had some tension. They'd had some, some disagreements. They were questioning whether Paul was even worthy to be called an apostle. All of this through the hard times and the good. Because it wasn't all bad. In fact, 2 Corinthians is actually a, a much cheerier letter that it sounds as if, though things were not perfect, they had actually listened to his rebukes and actually made some changes. And even in this letter we've looked at, he starts off the letter. We looked at this, what, 10 weeks ago at the very beginning. The first nine verses, if you just read those, you would think, wow, this church must have really had it going on because he celebrates them. He talks about what God has done in their midst. He talks about how they have been gifted with all of these gifts and how they are, are you know, filled with, with knowledge and, and, and great speaking and preaching and what God is doing and will continue to do. He just celebrates them. And likewise, at the very end of the letter, he signs off on a very positive note. The last two verses in the entire letter, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 23 and 24, say this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love to you. As if to say, no matter how bad you mess up, no matter how far off you are, no matter how frustrating you are, how exasperating you are, you will always have the grace of God. And isn't that a good news for us? That's why we need the grace of God, because we are so exasperated, we're so frustrated, we're so far off, we're so messed up. And not only will you have the grace of God, but he says, you'll have my love. As much as it was difficult, he had a shepherd's heart, a pastor's heart, a love for these people. They were his congregation, and he loved them. Toward the end of the letter, he talks about how he does want to come and visit them again, and that will be the case. And so over the last two and a half months or so, we've been looking at different messages out of this letter. About halfway through the series, maybe four weeks ago or so, I received a, an email from one of our online uh, attenders. They, they uh, uh, Professor Tom Burke and his wife V attend and worship with us every Saturday night. They live in Arizona now. And uh, Professor Burke sent me an email uh, just, you know, referencing something that I had said in a sermon. And then he said that how he and his wife were enjoying the series. And he said, let me be so bold as to offer a suggestion. Now, I get suggestions all the time. <laughs> they're, they're given to me free of charge, and they're worth about what I pay for them. And so he offered a suggestion to me. He said, might I be so bold as to suggest... As you've been in this series, we've been talking, Dear Church, a letter from Paul to the church. What if you were to end the whole series with, 
Dear Cornwall, a letter from Pastor Bob to the church. I hate it when people come up with really good ideas like that that actually have to be put on me. So I thought about that and kind of wrestled with it. The one thing, uh, Professor, is that it messes up my whole program because the sermon that I had planned to preach in this final week now has to be put on hold for some other time. And so I want to do a version of what he suggested. And so as we c- conclude this series... I do want to talk, and now I will be using verses out of 1 Corinthians. We're not leaving the letter, and we're going to be looking at uh, several different verses, so it's not just from one passage, but I want to talk about, as the pastor of Cornwall Church, if, and this is if, I'm not a prophet, so I'm, don't, don't take this as a prophecy, if this were to be my last sermon, I'm, I'm not saying it is, but if. If I were to go on a turkey trot on Thursday and get hit by a truck, or if I choked on a turkey bone, whatever. If this were my last sermon, what would it be that I, I, as my, my pastor's heart for this church, what would I want this church to hear from me about what I would hope for this church, I would dream for this church, I would pray for this church, I would long for this church. So I want to do that. And if it's not my last sermon... You're stuck with me, but the message is still the same. It's still what I hope, what I dream, what I pray for our church. And even more than that, 30 years from now, when I will not be your pastor, you don't want me as your pastor 30 years from now. Some guy wandering around, mumbling and shuffling about, never can make two sentences come together. You don't want me as your pastor. But if 30 years from now I came back or was here, my prayer is that what we talk about today would still be the case would still be what is happening in this church. So with that, um, unlike a good pastor, I'm going to have four points, and probably each point will get shorter and shorter, not because I don't have anything to say, but because I will run out of time. But like a good pastor, these will all be alliterated, so that's always fun. Okay? So you ready for that? Let's give it a shot. Okay, so as your pastor, dear, dear Cornwall, as your pastor, this is what I want for us. This is what I will always want for us. This is what I believe we have. And the first thing is that we would always have this unchanging center as a church and as individuals. By the way, all the way through, you can see this through two lenses. One is the church as a whole, and the other is you as an individual. That there would be an unchanging center. And I would hope that this would go without saying, but just to state the obvious, to make sure that we recognize that as a church, in the very heart of all things is the centrality of Christ. That that is it. That will never change. That this is an unchanging center. It's Jesus. That Jesus is our focal point. Jesus is the one that inspires us, that moves us. He is our motive. Jesus is our very life. Now, I think you would say, well, that kind of goes without saying, but I want to make sure we're really clear about that. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church. It's not my church. It's not our church. It's not the elders' church. It's Jesus' church. He purchased it with his blood. It's his church. He empowers it with his spirit. He envisions it, you know, directs it with his vision and enables the church with his gifts and everything that the church is about is ultimately for his glory, that he is at the center. And if ever we were to ever get distracted from that, if there was something else to draw our attention, something else to draw our focus, someone else, then we would have missed the mark because the whole reason the church even exists is for Jesus and for his glory. 
Now, as we saw early on in this series, Paul was dealing with some of this distraction in the church in Corinth because they had begun to focus on others. If you've been with us or if you've read 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that he said there were some people who say, well, well we're, we're in the camp with, with the apostle Paul. We're with Paul. And other people say, well, but, but we're with Pastor Apollos. I mean, he, that guy was amazing. He, he was our pastor. Some others say, well, we're with Cephas. We're with Peter. And, and he says, Paul follows that up, I think, in chapter 3, when he says, listen, who is Paul and who is Apollos and who is Cephas? We are all servants of Jesus Christ. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the leader. The church is about Jesus. And one of the things that I love about this church is that that has always been the case. Years ago, now it goes way back beyond this, but years ago, there was a pastor named Charles Milliman. He's been a pastor here for, at part of Cornwall Church for, for years, but the church was about Jesus. And Pastor Milliman left, and then, and then Vern Tedder came. Vern Tedder was the pastor here, but it was about Jesus. And Vern left, and then a young man named Ken Long came. He's a great pastor. He called me here to be the youth pastor. Ken Long was our pastor. Did great, but it was about Jesus. And then a little over 30 years ago, he left. And I became the pastor. But you know what? It's not about me. Because there will be another pastor that will come after me. Now, listen, this isn't a resignation sermon. Some of you are, I know I've heard of these emails. When every time I say anything, like, again, you don't want me to be the pastor here years from now. You don't. I don't. We don't. But it's not about the pastor. It's always about Jesus. Jesus is the only one that should ever be exalted or lifted up. Jesus is the only one that is to be worshipped. Jesus is the only one that will not fail you or let you down. Amen. It's the center that doesn't change. It's Jesus. So Paul writes these words early on in the book, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. What he's saying is here is this. The fact that any of us are even in the church is not because of a pastor. It's because we were sanctified by Jesus Christ. No pastor can save you. No leader can save you. Only Jesus can save you. That's why Paul would say in chapter 2, verse 2, when I came amongst you, I, I came knowing nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's the message. That is all about Jesus. Later in chapter 15, where we, we didn't even get into that. I, I did, um, in, in the Bellingham Refuge a, a week and a half ago, I did speak out of uh, uh, chapter 15. But in chapter 15, he talks about the importance of Jesus and his death and resurrection. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful Easter passage. Because he says, what I received to you, I passed on as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins and was buried according to the scriptures, and that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. He says, this is the first importance. This is so important. It's Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Years ago, after a Saturday night service here in Bellingham, someone came up to me and introduced me to this lady. said, hey, uh, this is her first time at Cornwall. I just wanted to introduce her to you. So we got to talking, and I said, well, I mean, tell me your story. I mean, why did you come tonight? How did you hear about church, uh, Cornwall, and all that? And she said, well, I've been thinking about coming back to church for the last 10 years. And I'm like, 
don't get in a hurry on these things, these big decisions. And she said, um, and actually I was online just looking for churches and I saw that you had a Saturday service and I thought, well, I can make that. So I came. I'm like, well, great. Well, so how was your experience? And her response was, yeah, mostly pretty good. I said, okay, mostly. Curious. What wasn't so great? And in all sincerity, she said, I'm just not really sure about that whole thing of Jesus dying for us. And inside, I'm like, that's the best part. Paul says, this is of first importance. This is why we're even here. He would go on to say, if it didn't happen, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, all of our preaching is useless, which some of you feel that's the case anyway. He said, you're still dead in your sins. Your faith is futile, and you're to be pitied more than all people. But he has been raised from the dead. He is alive. That sets him apart from anyone and everyone else. That he is our risen Savior, he is our reigning Lord, and he is our soon-returning King. And because of that, we exalt him, and he is at the center. And let me just say this. If you're here for the first time or you're new here, I just want to let you in on a secret. Don't tell anybody this, okay? A little secret. Around here, the thing that drives us in everything we do is that we want to help people find and follow Jesus. What that means is, if you bring your children to one of our campuses and you put them into our Children's Ministry Explorers League, they're going to have a great time. They might even get little goldfish. They're going to make art crafts. They're going to sing. But you know what our great desire is? That your children would find and follow Jesus. So if right now you're saying, so wait, you're trying to shape the, the mind and the direction and the heart of my child? Yes, Absolutely. And if you bring your kids to our middle school ministry to the edge, it'll be crazy, it'll be stinky, it'll be out of control chaos, it'll be fun, but our goal is that they would find and follow Jesus. Likewise with our high school ministry, the encounter, that is our goal, and it doesn't matter if you're a part of a quad or a pod or you're worshiping God, we want you to find and follow Jesus in a small group, in a Bible study, that is our goal, that you would find and follow Jesus. So Paul writes, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Into fellowship with Jesus. We don't want you to just know about Jesus. We don't want you to just learn about Jesus. In fact, we don't even want you to just believe that Jesus exists. We want you to walk in a relationship, in fellowship with Jesus like that. On Thursday this week, um, did a, a memorial service for Betty Skydema for many, many years. Betty was a, a, a greeter here um, at, in Bellingham, and uh, her daughter and son-in-law are part of our Skagit campus. And um, as I was preparing, meeting with Gaylene, her daughter, she was telling me a story as latter years, latter weeks, and even days of her life, Betty got to where she couldn't even talk. But in the home that she was in, the care facility that she was in, there was a woman that would come and sing hymns. And the last hymn that Betty mouthed with her words after she could no longer speak were these words. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste 
of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. She couldn't even say it, but she could mouth it. This is my story. This is my song. I want that for every single one of us. From the time you're baptized, from the time you receive Jesus, all the way through that you would walk with Jesus and in your dying breaths that you could say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. He's not just the Lord, he's my Lord. This is my story. And this is my song. And that is why, that is why we put Jesus at the very center. Now, if you were raised in church and you went to your class or your, your CCD or your Awana or Sunday school, whatever, and they asked a question, what was the right answer? Jesus. That was the right answer. Jesus. You say, well, of course. The fact that we have this unchanging center, it's not just a Sunday school answer. It's not just because it's the right answer. It's because it's the absolute necessity of the church to be the church. If Jesus is not the center, then the church is not the church. In Colossians, when it talks about Jesus, it says that, that he is the head of the body, the church. This is not a trick question. If a body loses connection with the head, well, I don't even ask the question. I'll tell you, I learned this lesson in the fourth grade at Lincoln Elementary School. My friend Chuck Clifton and I were out at recess. We were catching grasshoppers, and we had this great idea what if we transplanted the heads of these grasshoppers? I'm not trying to be graphic. We were fourth graders. We each grabbed a grasshopper, went into the classroom, got the paper cutter, did that, and then got tape off the teacher's desk and tried to tape the heads of this grasshopper onto the head of that grasshopper. It made perfect sense in our fourth grade mind. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. You know what happened to our grasshoppers? They died. That's what happens. And if Jesus is not the center of the church, we're a dead grasshopper. We're the headless horsemen running around, scaring the people to death. But Jesus is the unchanging center of the church. Paul, at the end of this letter, gives some pretty strong words in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Then the word Maranatha, come, O Lord. So that's kind of harsh. No, no, the truth is this. The curse is already on us apart from Jesus Christ. And so the converse is true that he who loves the Lord Jesus, a blessing is on them. Okay, now I, I got to keep moving. So I've already used up half my time. I've only got to one. Okay, they'll get shorter. I, I've told you that because I run out of time. Okay, so this un, unchanging center. The second thing, dear Cornwall, that we shall always have, we must always have, is an uncompromising conviction. An uncompromising conviction. And I might say, more so now than ever, but I don't know if that's the case. I think it's always been this way. But we live in a post-Christian country. We live in a culture that is farther and farther from biblical truths. And we need to have an uncompromising conviction of what it is that we believe, what it is we build our lives on. And it's the foundation of God's word. Not just as a, yeah, we, we, we have the Bible around here. 
but that God's word would shape how we think, how we live, how we act, how we relate, our morals, our priorities, our our values, all of these things. This is what Paul's been addressing them. And this is the same for us, that we would have God's word and his conviction to direct us, especially in a culture that is going farther and farther away from the truth of God's word. But it's not just the culture. I'm not in any way here to judge, but in churches, some churches today, there's a greater and greater drift away from the truths and the foundation of God's word. And maybe, maybe the biggest threat is not from our culture, but from within. To just slowly start this little erosion, this little compromise, a little less conviction, a little drift. I don't know if you know what this is. Yeah, this is a plumb line. This is what is referred to as a plumb bob. Usually my name is taken in vain. Bob the builder, Bob the tomato, SpongeBob, but at least the whole concept of a plumb bob is to show that there's an actual standard of what is vertical. Now, you could say, well, yeah, I know that says that, but I'm going to build the wall at this angle. That's fine. It's just not straight. There's a passage in Amos chapter 7. I know you guys were probably just reading in Amos this morning. Amos, this minor prophet, God is showing Amos some things. And one of the things he shows him in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, is a beautiful passage, is he shows them a wall that is straight, and God apparently is standing there with a plumb line, with a plumb bob. And he asks Amos the question, do you, do you know what this is? He says, well, yes, it's a, it's a plumb line. And God begins to talk not about the pagan culture, but about Israel about God's people, about those who have the truth, about those who have a covenant, about those who are walking in in a relationship with God. He talks about how they have left the standard. And it doesn't change God's standard. And I wonder in our lives and in our world and in our church, when we have God's standard, and there are times when it's inconvenient, And there are times when it's uncomfortable. And there are a lot of times where it will go against the norm and against the culture and even what we think or want in our own lives. But what is our conviction? What is our truth? So we live in a world where where there's a statement of there is no absolute truth, which, side note, and I don't have time for this, To state there is no absolute truth is to state an absolute truth, so it's a self-negating statement. But enough of the sophomoric reasoning there. To have this standard that is the truth. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. Just four, one right after another. Be on your guard. Why? Because it's subtle. It'll sneak up on you. If you're not aware, it's gonna, it'll happen to you. You won't even recognize it. 
Stand firm in your faith. Don't waver from these things. Be men of courage. Why, Why the courage? Because if you stand according to the truth of God's word, there's a good chance that you're going to be opposed. There's a good chance you might get canceled. There's a good chance you might be misunderstood. There's a good chance you'll be perfectly understood and pay the price because of it. People will think you're narrow or bigoted or hate-filled because you hold to a standard. So it says, be strong. What is that conviction that we will not compromise? It's God's word. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, we're in um, the, uh, um, the season of the, the meteor shower. What's, uh, what's the name of that? Uh, yeah, there's this, okay, whatever that word is. I thought it was a Leo knit or something or something. Anyway, but there's, there's meteor showers, and they peak this weekend. Not, I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It's either last night or tonight, I don't know. But it, it peaks, apparently, I read about this. I didn't stay up. But be, apparently between midnight and 5 a.m., like this is, this is the season where there are meteor showers, and you can see 10 to 15 meteors in an hour, estimated. There have been times when they weren't meteor showers, they were meteor storms. Again, I read about one in 1966 that happened, that there was this meteor storm where you could see up to 4,000 meteors per hour. Just the sky was just, you know, raining down fire from heaven, it appears. One of these meteor storms happened 190 years ago. It was either November 12th or November 13th, depending on what you read. But the year was 1833. And there was a 24-year-old man named Abraham Lincoln who was asleep in a room that he was boarding in, in the home of a Presbyterian deacon. And that night was one of these meteor storms, just meteors everywhere, just filling the sky. And there was a rap on Abraham Lincoln's door to wake him up, to let him know, this Presbyterian deacon, to let him know, hey, you better get up, it's the end of the world. Which at that point, it doesn't really matter if you're awake or asleep, I suppose, but make sure you don't want to miss this. So he raps on the, on the door, wakes up Abraham Lincoln, says, the, the world is coming to an end, it's awful, the, whole high, the sky is filled with fire. And Lincoln records that he walked out of the house, and sure enough, the, high, the skies were filled with chaotic mess of these meteorites, But he said he looked beyond the meteor storm and he saw, and this is his quote, the grand old constellations of which I was so familiar with and that they had not moved. They were true. They were fixed. And I knew it was not the end of the world. And he went and went to bed. See, Our world is filled with all these truths and this chaos and theological and all this stuff. But if we look beyond that, there's the grand old constellation of the word of God that does not change. Isaiah chapter 40 says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. In Matthew 7, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and builds his life on them is like a man who builds his house on a stone, on a rock. This is the uncompromising conviction that Cornwall Church has always held to and must always hold to. The truth of God's word. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. He says again, let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. See, it's, it's not just, not just us as a church. It is the case that when it comes to preaching, it better be the word of God. But it's for us as individuals as well. Because our lives and our minds are filled with so many different messages. And what does Paul write in Romans 12? Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? The word of God. The truth. To read, to study, to memorize. And most important, to apply to your lives. See, here's my goal, is that every weekend when you gather together with God's people, that we together would worship, and every single weekend that we gather together, that we collectively will hear truth from God's word every weekend. And my prayer is that every day when we're not in this gathering, that you will hear from God's word you will read it, you will study it, you will apply it, you will discuss it, that we would all grow. All right, so to have this unchanging center that Christ, the centrality of Christ, and to have this uncompromising conviction of the word of God, this is our foundation. I mean, men and women, brothers and sisters throughout human history and even in the world today, they risk their lives for the sake of being able to have the word of God, that we would build our lives on that as well. And the third one is that there would be this unwavering commitment. Dear Cornwall, that there would be an unwavering commitment. Now, I know right now some of you are going, here comes the guilt trip. This is when he starts trying to build his kingdom, start telling us that we got to come to church every week and have better attendance, that we got to follow the biblical mandate to tithe and give our money, and we got to serve, and, and all those things. Here it comes. And I would say yes to all three of those. But that's not what I'm getting at here. That, that's, you just preach a beautiful sermon to yourself. I don't even need to. What I'm talking about is something more than just stars on an attendance chart and dollars on a giving record or even hours served. So when he says, therefore, stand firm, let nothing move you, he finishes that verse, verse 58 Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord. What Jesus came to do. The redemption that Jesus came, the, the gospel that Jesus brought. The, the truth that, that Jesus came to a broken world to bring healing, came to a dark world to bring light, came, came to a, a world that was so filled with hatred and, and to bring reconciliation and forgiveness. This, to a world filled with sin to bring grace. What's it say in John three seventeen? God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then he says, and that's what he's done for us. Now join me in that effort. To give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. To see the kingdom of God advanced. I mentioned Betty Skydema's 
service on Thursday. When I was doing the service, we were up in the loft here in Bellingham campus. When I was doing the service, I was, you know, going through uh, what I, the words I had prepared, and I saw a lady sitting in the uh, audience that I had not seen in years. Um, because, see, the truth is, I do see you when I'm up here. I see And I know when you would sit in a different seat, hey, Skagit, I see you too. <laughs> you kids up in the balcony, I know. I see. I see what's going on there. Yes, I know. She held your hand. I, okay. So I see... So I was doing this funeral, and I see a lady sitting over here that I haven't seen in years. I'm like, wow, this is so great. She was a part of Cornwall. She came and started coming in the mid-90s with this unbelievable story that she had been a crack addict. She'd gotten pregnant with twins, continued using through her pregnancy, And all indicators were that these children would probably be deformed or they would be addicted. It would be a mess. And yet, by God's grace, these twin babies had none of those consequences. And it really shook her up. So she moved to Bellingham. She started coming to Cornwall. She gave her heart to Jesus. I baptized her. She was a part of this church. She was growing And years they moved, and so she went to a different church, and there she was. So afterwards, I went over, and I said, oh, it's so good to see you. Gave her a big hug, just getting caught up. And and then I was like, I'm puzzled, though. What was your connection with Betty? She said, Bob, when when I came here in the 90s, my mom lived in Billingham. I moved here in the 90s, and my life was a mess. I was trying to get it all put back together. She says, not only was my life a mess, my hair was a mess. So I went over by the Fred Meyer to a place called the Head Shed to get my hair done. And I didn't know anyone in town. And the cosmic hair, 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 hair gal. I, what is that word? Okay, that lady was Betty Skydema. Never met her before. I sit in her chair. You know how it is in a barber's chair, or not barber, a hair chair, whatever it's called. So you just start talking, start sharing. And I was sharing some of my story. Betty's cutting my hair, and she asked me, do you know Jesus? I said, no. We talked, and she said, I left. And it just got me thinking, and there was something about her. So five weeks later, I went back because I needed another haircut, and she talked to me some more. And Eventually, she invited me to Cornwall, and that's where I met Jesus, and you baptized me, and that's the story. And she said, and every five weeks, on Wednesday at 4.30, I would go back to Betty to have her do my hair for years and years and years and years. So that's my connection with her. And I was thinking... I wonder if Betty has any idea that, not in some grand way, but she just gives herself to the work of the Lord, knowing that her labor in the Lord is not in vain. And here's this woman, 26 years later, serving Jesus. Oh, what a beautiful picture. You see, the reason we have the church is not just to keep the doors open and the lights on so we can have social gatherings and potlucks and game nights. 
No, the church that Jesus came to establish is a life-transforming, culture-changing, spirit-empowered force that not even the gates of hell will be able to slow down. He says, so join and give yourself fully to that work, what Jesus has been up to. Don't just be a consumer, be, be a part of this. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, he says, for we are God's fellow workers. We're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You remember a few weeks ago when we gave out the Lego pieces. It's because you're a part of this. A couple weeks ago when Cynthia talked about, about us being the body of Christ and the gifts that we have, because we're all a part of this. And so that's what I would want for us, is that there would be this unchanging center and this un, un, uh, uncompromising conviction, this unwavering commitment. Jesus, the foundation of the word of God, and bringing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God to this world. Now there is one more, and I don't want to spend very much time on this at all because I'm out of time and because I spent all of last week with it. Here it is. It's an unlimited charity. Unlimited charity. Now, charity is not a word that I would use normally, but it had to be a fit into the alliteration. So that's why we needed a C. And charity so often has kind of a negative connotation. Don't you? Know, I'm not your charity case. I don't need your charity. It seems negative. The archaic, the old school version of charity. Let me tell you what it used to mean. A love of humankind, typically in a Christian context. What a beautiful, beautiful word. Some of you remember this passage from the King James Version. And it went this way out of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. This love of humankind, typically in a Christian context. Unlimited. Now, we spent all last week talking about that. This is so important. You remember in that passage that I just read a few points ago where he says, you know, be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. You know, be strong. Uh, men of courage. Sounds like a William uh, Wallace, you know, brave heart. Get them all fired up. The very next verse is this. Chapter 15, verse 14. Do everything in love. Because you can have an unchanging center in Jesus Christ and be one of the most obnoxious, offensive people ever. And we've seen that. The church has often been that way. You can have an uncompromising conviction and be so filled with self-righteous pride and judgment and condemnation that you repel others from the very grace of God. And you can be committed wholly to the work of the Lord, but it can be from a joyless, obligatory, legalistic, trying to earn your way or all those things, so much so that it is not inviting at all. If there is not love in the midst of it, the other three don't matter. So, dear Cornwall, we need to have an unchanging center, the centrality of Christ, because of our love for God and our love for others. We need to have an uncompromising conviction, standing firm, let nothing move us because of our love for God and our love for others. And we need to have an unwavering commitment to the things of the kingdom of God because of our love for God and our love for others.
So, if this is the last sermon I ever preach, at least you know what I would want for this church. And if it's not, you still know what I want for this church and for each one of us individually.